The following podcast is brought to you by cdkoffers.com. Use offer code BROKENSILICON for 25% off Windows codes and die shrink for 3% off all other codes. Links in the description and I will say more later. But for now, let's get to the show. This is Broken Silicon, a computer hardware and gaming podcast, although this episode is a little different than the usual one. It's usually about Intel, NVIDIA, AMD, sometimes ARM, and a lot of gaming graphics cards, processors, server-type stuff. But the truth of the matter is, I mean, I had a gaming PC before I did any type of mining, which then, of course, led me to Bitcoin. But... Not that much interest. Like I, I, I think I knew more than most people about PC hardware, but it was really when I had to start researching what was the best price performance for mining Litecoin that really sent me down the rabbit hole of PC hardware. But then, of course, also Bitcoin. So I'll let my uh, guest introduce himself, though. Sure. Yeah, so my name is Stefan Levera. I'm mostly known within the Bitcoin world as a podcast host. I... I'm known for approaching Bitcoin from an Austrian economics perspective. So there's, it's sort of a two-pronged approach there that, that you're learning Austrian economics, but you're also learning about the technology of Bitcoin by listening to the interviews that I conduct. And so I've been around the Bitcoin game for a little while. I came to this mostly from an Austrian economics and libertarian perspective, mm-hmm. although I think Bitcoin is one of those things where you don't have to be a libertarian to see the value of it. And so anyway, about me, I had a career as a chartered accountant and I worked in financial services. And over the last you know, sort of year and a half or two years-ish, a little under two years, I've been doing this podcast and then recently I've gone full-time with it. And so that's this podcast is now my main business. That's my main income. But I've also got another business called Ministry of Nodes, which is more targeted for beginners. So we do articles and guides and webinars. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah. And it's funny, actually, that you say now you do this full time because I was just texting with a friend today and he's like, hey, there's some openings over here if you're looking to like, you know, move to Madison, Wisconsin still or something like that. And uh, he's like, oh, you're still doing podcasting. And I started that a year ago. And I'm like, yes, podcasting is a real thing. If anything, it's become bigger than my main job, actually. So, yeah, I guess um, let me and and thank God you come from an Austrian economics perspective. Let me just say, like, for anyone who hasn't listened to your podcast, Stefan's, it's very much so no nonsense. There's none of this I mean, there's plenty of talk of hodling, I suppose, but there's less rapping and moon talk than you might expect from, well, I I would say at least how the media portrays Bitcoin. I mean, I think I actually heard about your podcast when I saw you get Jack Dorsey on, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, that pretty much put me on the map. So that was in February early this year. And so that basically came about partly because I had a, a certain reputation in the space. So I kind of had a bit of luck come my way from that. And then ever since that episode, that really kind of blew me up uh, within the Bitcoin world, so to speak. I'm, I'm not really known in the normal world, obviously. Uh, 
But I mean, for me, my role is really to try and spread education about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. And that's, that's my, that's my, I view that as my remit. Yeah. And so if you don't ask, mind me asking, uh, like, what did you technically major in in college and what made you choose that? I, you don't need to spend a long time on it, but I am curious. Like going yeah, back. So I, yeah, I had an interest in Austrian economics even when I was a teenager. Uh, so I didn't necessarily major or like formally study Austrian economics. For me, it was more like I studied, you know, I did economics and business studies and things like that at high school. I went on to study commerce. Mm-hmm. So for my actual tertiary qualification, I did accounting, finance, and information systems. But all the while, I was learning Austrian economics along the side. So from Mises.org and reading and listening and you know watching different YouTube videos and things like that. And so I just consider myself a longtime student of Austrian economics. I don't actually even consider myself like a master or yeah. anything like that. I'm, I'm, I'm like a longtime student. And that enables me to ask good questions when I invite an Austrian economist on the show to ask some questions about things because I, I have some of that background knowledge of, oh, okay, this is what the structure of production is or this is what, you know, whatever different concept. And I can ask questions in a way that help convey that for listeners. Many of my listeners, not all of them were, you know, Austrian into Austrian economics before Bitcoin. Many of them came into Bitcoin, and then as a result of this, they're actually learning some Austrian economics. So I view it like there's a there's an important need to sort of balance the learning of both. And I think you need some concept of the economics around Bitcoin to understand it, like why it's important and what what are the things that help make it more important. And so. That's really the focus that I've taken. I think uh, nowadays I, I sort of have a lot of technical level interviews as well mm-hmm. that are more like at a computer science and you know, software development angle. But I definitely try to bring that Austrian flavor to it in terms of why, why is this important? Why are we doing this? Well, it's funny, Austrian economics. Um, well, actually, uh, before I get really going here, what would you, could you, in a sentence, what would you say Austrian economics is? Because it's kind of contrary to how a lot of people think the world works. Gotcha. So Austrian economics is a particular school of economic thought that focuses on human individual action and choice. And it relates to spontaneous results of the market. And so you might think of it like Austrian economists tend to be very free market and they tend to see the value of things that are the result of human action, but not of human design, to use a turn of phrase that Hayek used. So Mm. that is in a kind of a quick way to explain what Austrian economics is. And it has a major difference against some of the more mainstream schools of economics in that there is a precise Austrian method, and you, we might think of that like a, it's like deductive reasoning as opposed to inductive reasoning. Mm-hmm. Ho- hopefully that makes sense. It's, it's difficult to kind of quickly convey, but I think th- essentially it, it believes in the power of like bottom-up and individual choice. Yeah, so I guess I'll start with my spiel then, and I'll get back to what you were just talking about, of like how I got into this. So um, I, I think Andreas Antonopoulos said this, and it's such a good quote. I don't remember the first time I heard of Bitcoin, but I remember the second time because I remember I had heard about this thing I had dismissed again, right? I, I think when I, at least my first memory 
of Bitcoin was in 2012. I remember some guy on YouTube, he was actually an older guy, and he was talking about it. He just thought it was hilarious, but in a good way, that these guys with God-tier gaming PCs were making money mining some kind of a virtual currency. And so I heard about that, and then I went, oh, so I've got a PC. Let me check this out. I download the Bitcoin, you know, the standard Bitcoin QT node, and it takes forever to start downloading the blockchain. And uh, I was, I assumed I did something wrong. So I let it start downloading for like two hours and then just deleted it and forgot it. Really wish I wouldn't have deleted it and forgot it in 2012, to be honest. <laughs> but, but yeah, anyway, so then later in 2013, I started hearing about how people are like buying up graphics cards to mine Litecoin. And I go, what? This still exists? Oh, I should take a look at this. It's been over a year. This must not be a wait, complete waste of time. And I start doing more and more research. I, I get... Uh, I get without too much trouble Litecoin mining started. I'm making, you know, on my 7970, which is like the strongest graphics card of the time, I'm making, you know, 10, 20 bucks a week, which I'm a poor college student with literally zero spending money. So I just thought this was fantastic. Like I couldn't believe uh, that I could make money off of a thing I thought was just a sunk cost. And mm. I kept mining it more and more. And I started realizing like, oh, if, if I scale this up, I can make a lot more money. And so, and I can trade LTC for Amazon uh, gift cards, which, you know, in college, that's all I used to shop anyways. So I started doing that. And I started getting these other like dirt cheap $60 graphics cards. And I'll put this there for people who listen, a picture of it. I had like the side of my desktop was opened up. I had ribbons coming out of the side of this gaming PC, and I would put a graphics card, two Lincoln Logs, then a graphics card on top of that, and then two Lincoln Logs. And I just had this stack of Lincoln Log cards next to my gaming PC, that, using as much energy as I could <laughs> in the free dorm. And so I start doing that more and more and more. And then I'm like, well, you know, I should convert some of it to Bitcoin, because apparently that's the big one. I don't know. I didn't know that much. And then I read the white paper, and I was like, oh, this might actually work. Like they've actually put a lot of thought into things I didn't even know were an issue, right? And, and no one really thinks about money. And I looked at, and that brought me to Austrian economics. And so then I look up the definition and it's at least how Google describes it, I believe, is it's basically like the idea that, what is it? Things get value because people want them. Whereas Keynesian, which is how most people, I believe, think still in the Western world, they think things get money because it's easy to buy them. <laughs> which, when I read the Austrian definition of like, you know, what creates like a set price, I was like, oh, there's a debate over this? I always thought it was common sense. Right. And so um, the way I think of it is I would contrast it, not necessarily Keynesian in that sense. I would think of it more like, Chartalism, right? So it's this idea that the government, the king, the state must mm -hmm. set the money, and that is why uh, you know this might this is this is the money of the land. Whereas the Austrian story is a little bit different. It's a little bit more like, hey, we need something to get around this problem of the double coincidence of wants. I need to need the exact thing that you want, mm -hmm. and you, you have to want the thing that I want, right? And so we need a medium of exchange, and that's that concept there. And what it is is it's saying that people could coalesce towards a better better monies over time because they just in their own interest find that hey 
I might not directly want gold, right? Mm-hmm. In a, you know, thousands of years ago, but I know if I have gold, I can buy pretty much whatever else I want. Mm-hmm. And so it just becomes this special thing. It's not a consumer good. It is not a capital good, right? So it's not something that you consume directly. It's not something that you use in the creation of another good, right? It's not mm-hmm. like a computer or a printer or whatever. It's a special thing. It's money. And it's not that there was a that we needed a top-down edict. Mm-hmm. We just need people to act in their own interest, right? And then you layer on those additional concepts, right? And I'm sure you've you've probably read Safety in a Moose's book, The Bitcoin Standard, right? And that would be probably a, a good place to start for many of your listeners mm-hmm. if they're interested to learn more about this because he talks about this whole idea of what is hard money and why 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 might that be a superior thing? And what's, yeah. okay, so to define what's a hard money, yeah. right? It's a money that is hard to make, right? As opposed to fiat money, which is easy to as make. As much as you want. And so, yeah, <laughs> right. That's right. And so then as you start thinking and going down that rabbit hole a little bit further, and then you start thinking about, okay, maybe I should start thinking about what is the inflation rate Mm -hmm. of the US dollar? What is the inflation rate of gold? What is the inflation rate of Bitcoin over time? Or Mm -hmm. inversely, very low inflation. It just will be a better way to store our value and save over the longer term. Now, yes, it will be volatile in the short run Mm -hmm. and nobody makes any bones about that. Nobody is hiding that. Yes, it will be volatile, but over the long term, it's volatile in the direction up because Mm -hmm. we think it's just more scarce. It's a better savings technology. But then you layer on this other part, it's not just a better savings technology, it's also a better payments technology. I can pay you right now over the internet, no one can stop me, Mm -hmm. right? That the only other way to do that right now is if I were to do that with, say, US dollar, but then PayPal could stop me or the credit card company could stop me mm-hmm. or the bank might stop me or there might be sanctions laws. But those don't apply within the Bitcoin world. And that's why Bitcoin is so powerful, right? So I think that, that comes to your story as well, that we come to Bitcoin for different reasons, right? Like you came to it from this graphics card. I just wanted Amazon world, gift right? cards. Right. Exactly. But then for many people, they all have their own little opening foot in the door or their own little pathway. And then once they come in and then they find out really what this is about and they start reading more about, okay, what makes a good money? Why, why do we use the money we use today? Was it that the market freely chose it? No, it's not. It's that the government pushed us in this pathway. And again, now I want to be careful here. It's not like, oh, deep, dark conspiracy. Yeah, if I may, because I do have to jump yeah, in here because there's a lot being thrown at people that usually, well, let's just say this. Like I, I, want, I have to be careful because I imagine there's a lot of people that already turned this off because they're worried this is turning into some libertarian circle jerk fever dream or you know, something like that. But it, it's not that a power from on high gave this money value. It's that you want money that holds value. And for a long time, the only way really, really to have money that holds value is to have the people with the most guns keep it holding value. That's really what you're saying, though, is I want something that'll hold value. And for a long time, it's been the military. And you, you, can, you can say it was gold, but nah, you can take gold with swords or guns. I don't know. <laughs> I mean... Gold kind of worked, but it was at the end of the day, always those governments and people trusted it, not because that's the best system, but because that was really the only system, you know, and I mine Litecoin, right? And eventually I'm like, I'm pretty happy. And then I start looking around at other coins and I discover this one called Darkcoin within the first two months of it getting made. 
And that was one of the best decisions I've ever made is to start mining that when it was worth $2 or something. And to be honest, I actually really liked it. And I was always comparing it, though, if I'm being honest with myself, to other altcoins. And because Dartcoin was so much better than Feathercoin or these other coins that were just obvious outright scams, that this one had to succeed. And I wasn't taking the time to evaluate it against Bitcoin. Now, it worked out fine. Eventually, you know, uh, I made a ton of Dartcoin, which accumulated value as Dash and blah, blah, blah. But one thing I noticed more and more as I mined was a thing that bothered me. The earliest red flag was how it always felt like if I go on the Bitcoin Reddit, I'm not the smartest person in almost any conversation. Like I, I can tell this guy knows more than me. He has more education. The way he's talking just seems smarter. But when I would go to these altcoin Reddits, man, I think I was the smartest guy in almost every one of those Reddits. And the, the thing that really annoyed me is that I could make their own arguments, you know, people who should be on my side better than they could themselves. And I was like, it seems like they don't even understand why this coin has any value. And, and then there was the thing where they decided to do an inflation curve, which really, really bothered me a lot. It was intentional. It was at first going to have, I think, around as many coins or whatever as Litecoin, which is four times Bitcoin, so like 84 million. For those who don't know, Bitcoin has a 21 million cap. And they were going to curve it to about 19. And everyone voted and said yes, but I was just like, I thought the entire point was to make this easier to exchange with low transaction fees and a lower valued coin. And now you're curving this to reward the people who got in first. I don't, and I was like, I don't care that it benefits me. I think really long-term, you're just really hurting one of its main appeals. And it always just came back to how can we make short-term profits in this coin? Didn't matter if I thought it was good, a good project with decent founders. You know, and eventually it, I, I just decided I got, when I, I think I didn't accept it for six months, <laughs> but I think when I really decided I got to just sell this all for Bitcoin finally, and I always own some Bitcoin, is they did this big vote with the nodes for changing their marketing logo. <laughs> and I learned that they had paid some advertising firm in Spain like $100,000 to do this whole big thing. And I just got furious in the forums. I'm like, I've been here since the first month. I've, this is the first time I've talked in two years on these forums. They spent $100,000 on changing the logo. The logo is fine. Bitcoin's never changed its logo. What are you guys wasting this money on? And ultimately, they voted to keep the original logo. And that's when I realized <laughs> these guys don't know what they're fucking doing. And, and, and then I realized, well, the founder left after the first year. <laughs> and whoever's in charge now, you know, and so over time, I just realized it wasn't worth it. And, you know, eventually I mined Ethereum. But ever since that, it was... I'd still mine Ethereum. I just traded for Bitcoin, you know? And, and I think one of the main things, the, the, there's a lot of what I try to do now when I write an article about Bitcoin or something is just try to get ahead of the buzzwords and just say, whoa, 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 don't get distracted. Let's start here. Hmm. I think the reason, one of the reasons you are dismissing Bitcoin is because you're comparing your altcoin to the other altcoins. doesn't matter if it's better than the other 10,000 altcoins. You need to compare it to if it's actually needed besides Bitcoin. 
That's and and people fall in this logic trap of I have the best coin. Maybe this will be the number two coin, and I'll make more money. But it it usually doesn't end up that way. You almost never sell at the right time. Usually because of pride. Absolutely, I think ego and pride play a big role in this space. And there's a lot of people who. For some reason or other, they got told about Bitcoin and they ignored it. And now they feel like, oh, I can't get in on the ground floor Mm -hmm. on Bitcoin. But if I get in the ground floor on this other altcoin, then maybe I can be the big fish in a little pond over there kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Or they feel like maybe that's a good way, you know, and then they, uh, I think without getting too much into like armchair psychologist sort of stuff, I think some of it is just like, they just want to feel like they've got a chance to catch up the gains that they missed out. Yes. When really, most of the time, you're just going to be better off just accepting that, okay, yeah, you weren't a 2011 Bitcoiner. I wish I was a 2011 Bitcoiner too, right? But I'm not, unfortunately. And ultimately, it comes down to what do you think is most likely to become the global money? and what is, or, or even in the lower case, like let's say not sure. global money, but like equivalent of gold, right? Seven or eight trillion market cap. There's still a huge, huge you know, upside to come on Bitcoin today is what, 150, 160 billion market cap, let's call it. Mm-hmm. And so even if you only thought Bitcoin would only get to the level of gold today, that's still a massive upside. And I think really the upside is actually much, much bigger than that. So from my perspective, people who really zoom out and look at the right things and look at the economics of this, look at this as a money, right? We're trying to understand, could this thing become money? Mm-hmm. And what reasons would we believe it might make a better money than the US dollar or gold? And once you really start digging into that further, that is really the case. And so I think a lot of people get stuck into too much around technology without appreciating the monetary aspects of it. That's part one. And then part two, a lot of people don't really appreciate the trade-offs that get made by some of the altcoins. And so Mm. that, that becomes a very... Uh, dishonest part of the marketing around some of these altcoins because they say, oh, look, I've got this partnership, I've got this, that, and the other, or I've got faster transactions. Proof of news. Yeah, right? Um, And the other part, and I think this is also an important part, is around centralization. So Bitcoin actually has no leader. There is no CEO. There Mm -hmm. is no one person who can just say, yep, this is the way we're going. And that's why sometimes it can take a while to get new changes or consensus level changes into Bitcoin because you have to build support for them. You have to you know, coordinate in a decentralized way. Whereas pretty much every other altcoin has some kind of benevolent dictator or mm-hmm. they've got a foundation or they've got a company who basically controls it, <coughs> Ripple. Um, yeah. So it just, people have to think about this like, it's like that classic Warren Buffett saying, you only see you only see who's swimming naked when the tide goes out, mm-hmm. right? Most of these altcoins, they've just not gotten big enough that a government needed to attack them. Mm. Yeah, Bitcoin nowhere near big is enough. More, yeah, right? And Bitcoin is actually trying, like people in Bitcoin and people who are really into Bitcoin, they are constantly looking at ways to help build the resilience of Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. They're doing things like having Bitcoin blockchain broadcast from Blockstream satellites around the world. Well, yeah, so let me say that too. For people who don't know, like you don't have to use the internet to send a Bitcoin transaction. And in fact, there are satellites and radio waves you can use. They're already up there and working right now. Like if they turned off the internet, the network would not die already. I, I think that's a huge misconception. It'd be a big problem. Yeah, right, right. It would be much harder, right? So for clarity, 
Blockstream satellite allows you to receive the Bitcoin blockchain, but you, in order to broadcast, you would probably need to have, you, you might find a way to broadcast it using like SMS gateways and things like that to, mm-hmm. to, to somebody who does have internet and they would broadcast it up. But then Blockstream satellite allows you to just download it on a you know, microwave. And there have been people like uh, Rodolfo Novak and Elaine Wu who've done like radio transaction, radio transmission mm-hmm. of Bitcoin transactions and things like that. So that's one example. And then what else? People are doing mesh networking. People are like thinking of ways to run over Tor so that they can help mask use of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And people are looking at privacy techniques in Bitcoin using CoinJoin and other associated techniques. And people are looking at the Lightning Network to help make uh, day-to-day transactions easier to do as well. And there are people working on making you know Lightning Network easy to set up, right? So there's all these different, and there's meetup groups. And mm-hmm. so there's all these different people who are, looking at this like, no, we need to build this thing. This is civilizational infrastructure, mm-hmm. right? Even if I'm not a developer, I can still help build it by helping write a guide or I can help teach people how to do Bitcoin, how to use Bitcoin. There are people out there trying to do this. I, you know, I consider myself one of those people trying <laughs> to help this. Um, and, so, and many of my listeners of my podcast do consider themselves in that way as well. They tend to be the what I call the Bitcoin guy in their friends and family circle. If someone has a question about Bitcoin, they'll be the one to get asked. And so they they try to stay up to date on these things and help update and teach their mm. own family and friends. Okay, this is how you get involved with Bitcoin. This is how you do a Bitcoin transaction. Here's how you set up. Here's how you do your backups. Here's how you do your hardware wallets, etc. And so on. And so it it just has a completely different mindset around making this thing resilient compared to the old Well, and notice no one had to start paying you like the Dash podcast to start podcasting for them. You did it on your own and you did it. it, But deep down, it also is selfish though. We're not doing it because someone's paying us to talk about it. We're doing it because we think the world would be better (laughs) if this is how it worked. And we're selfishly doing it, but we're also really passionate about it. And you see so many altcoin projects die because they maybe don't even run out of money. They just run out of people who are willing to accept their money. That's right. I think that's what I call the die on a hill factor, right? Mm. If your altcoin doesn't have people who are basically willing to die on a hill for it, it's not going to last. Whereas I think for Bitcoin, there's there's thousands (laughs) of, uh, you know, thousands or more of people who will literally die on this hill because they think Bitcoin is so important for society and it just has to succeed. And that's why there's all these people out there who are trying to review code and contribute code and write guides and make things easy, uh, or at least make it more resilient. That's in a nutshell how I would put it. Yeah. And and I guess, again, a way to back up here, because let me say this too. No one should have to think about money. Ideally, you should just be trying to make goods and services and things that other people want. And the money should be there in a way that is out of the way so you can just not be held back. And the way, I guess I'm trying to think of ways to really make people realize it's not a matter of just like, we want to get rich. Although, I mean, like, again, like a lot of people, I think now uh, intelligently say, you, you got to stop pretending you don't want the price to go up, though. You're in it for the tech. Course, I mean, I'm, I want that price to go way up. Of course I do. I'm not going to pretend I don't. But the reason it would is because of how scarce it is. And I think people just have a hard time understanding that inflation, uh, let's say it's 
3%, although I think it's probably closer to 5%. I heard that some of the law of the prices already look higher to me than even just 20 years ago, and I don't see why they would if wages are mostly stagnant. You know, like that uh, inflation is a way for the government to basically double tax you. I just hope everyone listening understands that because if they're the ones printing the money, they get the money first and then they use it to pay someone and then they use it to pay someone. If you're not high up in the government, you're one of the last people getting that money. You're the one infected by inflation. The people printing it, they got to spend it on, you know, gold, sometimes Bitcoin, I suppose, with some people in the government already, and land, all these other, you know, S&P 500, all of these other assets they're using to save money. And, you know, actually, it's funny. It's something um, I was talking about with my brother the other day, and he, he was like, I just think it's so funny people think that money is so valuable. If it was so valuable, why is every retirement fund built around getting rid of your cash as soon as possible? <laughs> like we all That's know right. it's true, whether we admit it or not. Yeah, absolutely. So what's happened is over time, the governments of the world have turned cash into a terrible way of saving. And in the past, you know, we needed, well, just generally, we need to hold what's called a cash balance, right? Because I might yeah. get sick or I might have an accident. I need to pay for my healthcare or whatever. And so for that reason, we would want to save. But then the problem comes when the, if you save in Australian dollar or in US dollar or whatever, mm-hmm. your, your value is just continually getting eroded. And because they've turned it into this game, and as you mentioned, it's become a chase for yield, right? Mm-hmm. So people do not want to leave their money in the US dollar directly. They go buy bonds and they buy stocks and they buy real estate and something because they know otherwise they're losing against that. And so Bitcoin in some ways is sort of a return back to saying, no, money actually should be more like you can just save directly into that money. And so it drives many other societal impacts. And as you say, it's those who are closest to the monetary spigot, right? So people who are closer into the government, in the central banks, and also the people who are getting that credit first. Where has that been historically? Well, dot-com bubble, housing bubble, Mm -hmm. right? Those big construction companies and so on, these are the ones who are benefiting out of this. Whereas if you're just an average worker, you're the one getting screwed out of this. And the problem is it causes people to only point at the symptoms. So they'll see, oh, big business or big bank or whatever, but they don't understand what is the actual root cause of all this. It's in our view, it's central banking and government control of money is the root cause that, you know, all these people are out here attacking the symptom. What we need to do is change the root cause to change the actual um, society in a way that's going to be better for all of us. And I got to jump in here because the problem I think also is when you get a couple Bitcoiners talking, it, it starts to just sound like a conspiracy podcast. But I, I want to take a step back and say to everyone, like, I know if you made a word cloud of everything we said, there'd be big banks and gold and cons- like all. And it, oh, it looks like this is a conspiracy podcast, but like we're just saying facts. And I'm just it's just time to stop ignoring the facts, people. Inflation is real. Everyone agrees it's real. So if it is real, why do you think the S&P keeps booming and busting and housing? It's because people are trying to get rid of their money. That's why there's these bust cycles that leave victims at the end of them. It's because the money isn't sound. That's a fact. And then there's other facts I like throw out there. Just You got to accept these facts before you try to read about Bitcoin, I think, because it's like, 
For instance, the central bank of the United States is not part of the government. It's a separate entity of private banks that vote on things on their own. It's not really true that the U.S. dollar is backed by, uh, or, yeah, that the U.S. dollar is backed by the government. It's that the government's backed by the U.S. dollar, <laughs> which is controlled by right. private banks. And that's a fact. This right. isn't a conspiracy. It's not actually federal. There's just federal in the name of the banking system. It's really not controlled by the government. They control right. themselves. And most people don't understand. I think they put federal in the name for a reason. So, look, let me make one other point here related to what you were just saying, right? Like, so to people who are not libertarian, I think, yeah, it might seem like, oh, it's all conspiracy, whatever. In my view, it's more like some of this stuff is like a conspiracy without conspirators. Yes, right? It's yes. not that like there was like this deep, dark, you know, all these guys in suits got together in a room and said, how can we screw over the population? It's more like the system had incentives in a certain way that were just set up to push it a certain way, if that yes. if you will. And so it's like economists, they, you know, the modern day court economists, if you will, they mostly shill the Keynesian or Chicago school or otherwise monetary yeah. interventionist line. Why? Because that's where the money is. That's where your job is. Most of the jobs in a central bank or most of the jobs for economists, professional economists, are at like central banks and other institutions like that. So you're not going to get a job as an economist unless you toe yeah. the party line, right? And so it's not that there's like a top-down kind of order about it. It's just like people go where the money is. And not only that, it's easier for a politician to push the cost into future because if the politician were to come out and say, hey, I'm going to raise all your taxes now to fund all these big social mm. programs I want to do, then that's not going to be so popular as the politician who says stuff like, oh, we can just print the money. Mm -hmm. Oh, we can just push the cost to future generations. Now, they may not explicitly say that. Mm -hmm. but That's what they're doing, yeah. They'll put it in that way. And then what's more likely, who's more likely to win the vote? Well, the one who's promising mm -hmm. you stuff mm -hmm. that, that seems like he's giving you free things, right? And so it's a conspiracy without conspirators. It's, it's just the incentives push it in that way. But this is where Bitcoin changes things and Bitcoin fixes this, right? Because Bitcoin is a defensive technology. It's an asymmetric technology. It's so much harder to attack and it's much cheaper to defend. So you can think of it like you don't necessarily have to be a big libertarian to buy Bitcoin. Mm -mm. You might just think, hey, I might just buy a small percentage of my portfolio, or I might just start dollar cost averaging a small amount every week, whatever, $10 a week, $50 a week, whatever is like a small throwaway amount for you. And you can just start stacking sats, as we say. And what that does is it gives you some level of protection against the monetary craziness that we're living in today. Because we're, we're living in these crazy bubble times, but nobody knows when it's going to end. Nobody knows when it'll pop, right? Just like communism. We knew communism was an <laughs> absurd idea for like six or seven decades, but it, that's how long it took to, to fail. It took, you know, I mean, it was failing all the way through, but it, it only stopped, you know, in the, in the very broad sense. Well, there's people that still think it can work. <laughs> <laughs> which, right. which with that, my argument is all I know is that whether it can theoretically work or not, every time we've tried it, it's failed horribly. So why you would try the system that fails every time is beyond me. But That's right. And I think from my perspective and from an, uh, you know, somebody who's a student of Austrian economics would say it, it, would, it doesn't even work in, in theory. There's literally just a hard, like a hard stop problem that you can't solve. And this is, comes back to Ludwig von Mises in his article, uh, 
economic calculation in the socialist commonwealth. And I believe he wrote that in in the 1920s, if I recall correctly. (laughs) So he's like, we've known this for a long, long time, but people don't listen. They don't want to listen. They want to believe. And so my view is if someone's a hardcore communist, I'm I'm not going to be able to change that person's mind. No, probably not. but I can, I can get to a moderate or I can get to a conservative and obviously I can get to libertarians. Many are slowly but surely coming around to that. And that's been my experience in terms of when I'm talking to people about it. But at the same time, there's also this angle of, you know, shill lightly, right? Like someone like Matt yeah. Adele would say, right? It's like, you don't necessarily ram it in people's faces, right? It's more just like you have it there. It's something you do. And if somebody wants to ask you about it, they can come and ask you and you're willing to help them. That's that's kind of the approach I take with it as well. Like I put it, obviously, it's a little different in my case because I'm a Bitcoin podcaster. I'm a mm. specialist in this. Uh, so I put that material out there. But uh, when I'm at a barbecue or at like some more social gathering thing, it's not like I'm constantly shilling Bitcoin at them. I'm just sort of no. talking about whatever. And then if somebody asks me about Bitcoin... That's a good way to get kicked out of a barbecue too. <laughs> exactly, right? So for me, it's more just like I... Just talk about whatever. And then when someone wants help, then yes, they know I'm the person they can come and ask. And that's that's how I think people should be about this Bitcoin stuff as well, right? Like you just you just have it there, you have it available, you're not necessarily over the top about it. Well, you know, when uh, I think a lot of my friends remember back in like 2013 when I started to like, my eyes were just always lit up when I talked about Bitcoin. I mean, they still pretty much always are, but like back then. And it's not that I was trying to convince, and I have a few friends who listen to this, so hopefully they haven't turned it off by now, but it's not that I was trying to convince you that Bitcoin needs to be bought by you now. It's that I was legitimately that excited about it. I felt, I felt like I was looking at a the first train moving. I was like in the 1800s, like, oh my God, that's not an animal and it's moving. <laughs> like something that I thought, I mean, because when you really break it down, a bit, what the main thing Bitcoin does is solves the problem of digital scarcity. It makes it so there's a digital token that you can't copy and paste, right? Or at the very least, we would That's say right. you can't copy and paste without everyone else in the network agreeing you can. <laughs> you know? That's right. That's, yeah. So what I, what I try to go back to is I, I, I try to stay away from the uh, using the word libertarian, mostly because the Libertarian Party in America Man, you know, (laughs) let me just say this. I thought Gary Johnson, I liked him at first, but the more he talked, I was like, oh no, he's he's really screwing up in some of these conversations. And, but then you go to a libertarian debate, I actually watched parts of it and, you know, whoa, he is the most reasonable libertarian by a long shot when it comes to the American Libertarian Party. And, And I try to make that point that it's not, at least for me, the point I try to make a lot is that Bitcoin is not a, libertarian ideology. I, I don't, yeah, some libertarians hear about it and they hear the principles and then they, they gravitate right towards it. But from what I can tell, libertarians are coming from Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin's turning people into libertarians That's more right. so than the other way around. And Bitcoin's, you can call it whatever ideology you want. And usually that's a way to smear it, although we like to own it because we like to think of ourselves as libertarians. So we don't think of it as an insult. But when people say, well, it's a bit, uh, you know, Bitcoin's a libertarian fever dream. Well, first of all, it kind of is. But (laughs) second of all, it's not an ideology. It's built to reject ideologies. Bitcoin is built around the idea that basically everyone needs to agree on a change and we only upgrade 
when everyone agrees. And so it has to be stable and fixed. And so it's really a new consensus government system that we really haven't seen before. And it it really isn't libertarianism. Libertarianism, you know, is very much so, it kind of rejects, I think, one of those like Blade Runner technocratic dystopias because it doesn't allow companies to get away with a whole lot, actually, if Bitcoin was the standard. Right. And so I definitely hear that perspective. And you sort of go back and forward, right? Because sometimes you can say, is it political? Like, well, in some ways, it's deeply political because it's basically Mm -hmm. reducing the size of the government. And in other ways, you can say, well, it's not that political because Bitcoin is not like a left wing or a right wing party like we traditionally understand it. I think one way to really conceive of Bitcoin is it is a techno-libertarian answer to a techno-authoritarian problem. Mm -hmm. So we are facing a world where there is increasing authoritarianism and increasing opportunity for that, right? Like the Snowden uh, Mm -hmm. files that were released really showed this to everyone because for years people were saying, oh, you NSA, NSA conspiracy theorists or whatever. But then once Snowden stuff came out, it was like, no, actually, he was right. And there was like way more that we didn't even know about. That one that really out. got me too. I was like, oh, whoa, one of these things is real? <laughs> exactly, right? And not, and, and now we're seeing stuff like, you know, the social credit system in China. Yeah. We're seeing that new, there was like that um, application that can identify people just from one photo, mm-hmm. like by basically going and scraping all the pictures from Facebook and Instagram and wherever else online, it can identify people with like a very high percentage um, chance. And, you know, obviously you see that there's there's a massive potential for authoritarian rules and things. It, it, it may be the death of privacy. And so we absolutely need something like Bitcoin because we need a way to preserve our financial privacy and also our ability to you know, save as well, which is, consti- which is constantly being eroded by government money. So, but, but why I would push back on associating Bitcoin strongly with libertarianism, at least doing it intentionally, is because it's really not, at least in in the U.S., libertarianism tends to be associated with the right side of politics, as we usually call it, although you can certainly debate what's left and right anymore. And they associate it with laissez-faire capitalism and all of these other things. And it's really not about laissez-faire capitalism. It's about consensus and consensus in a way that rejects authoritarianism. So authoritarianism can arise either from the left with communism or from the right with fascism. No matter how you dice it, if one side gets too powerful, they always turn to authoritarianism, and Bitcoin rejects it from both sides. It's not left or right. To sum it up, it's a techno-libertarian answer to a techno-authoritarian problem. So whether you, if a person is not a libertarian, I think they will eventually reach that point where they start seeing, okay, I see the way the winds are blowing. I see the way governments are encroaching onto people. And I think it will turn more people into libertarians, right? So another analogy that we might say now is even um, people who are part of a party like if they're part of a political party, mm-hmm. sometimes they, over time they feel like the party left them, if that yeah. makes sense. They feel like they were here and the party actually shifted. A lot of people feeling like think, that lately. <laughs> right? And so I think over time it will be like that in terms of everyone will become a techno-libertarian in some sense, right? And now the analogy I would say is that there are a lot of libertarians who are not 
into Bitcoin. And to me, that's always very puzzling because I think some of them just want to be political tragics. They would rather just kind of whinge about the system mm. than do something that actively allows you yeah. to save your wealth. And so I think over time, that same concept of like, I stayed here, but then the party moved. I think it's kind of like that. It'll be the average person, whether they're a libertarian or not, will be like, I stayed here, but then the government just became like more and more authoritarian. So it's going to push more and more people into this idea of getting into Bitcoin. Even if they're not like, you know, putting a high percentage of their worth into it, they can just hold a small amount. And then over time, they will just kind of become more techno-libertarian in their way of thinking. And a a very uh, influential book within the Bitcoin world or uh, not necessarily influential, I wouldn't say like explicitly influential, it's just driving a lot of the underlying thought is the sovereign individual, right? It's this idea that over time, individuals will, you know, the, the way the winds are blowing, the way the technology is shaping up. And so in that book, they call it cyber money, right? But basically, Bitcoin is kind of becoming what that cyber money idea was. And people can start seceding from the state in some ways. And Mm -hmm. now again, like this goes into like, oh, the crazy libertarians, right? Well, what? I don't want to do that. Like, I want, you know, whatever services. But I just think of it more like government will have to change and it will become, it's kind of like, uh, hundreds of years ago, the church was the state, right? And then the church kind of- For a lot of countries, yeah. less powerful over time. I think it's the same kind of thing, right? The government will just kind of become less powerful and it will have to actually provide services. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that, you know, the roads will disappear or the children won't get educated or we won't have, there won't be national defense or there won't be yeah. defense. Those things will exist. They'll just be provided in a different way. Mm-hmm. And it's not that there needs to be any big, big radical change right now. It's just that there will be steady, gradual change. And the way I view that will that occurring is people will slowly but surely move to where they get better treatment. Right. So, for example, if they feel like oh, it's high tax in whatever country, they'll go to a low low tax country, and they can mm-hmm. start getting Especially better. Especially as travel gets faster and faster. Exactly. So I think people are now able to live in a more digital world. They can earn money online. They can spend money online. They want to be able to have a higher level of quality and service that we're starting to see now from things like online services, Mm -hmm. right? Like you can just sign up, you can unsubscribe if you don't like it. It's brutal competition. But at the same time, it means you get a good product. And in the same way, governments will have to compete for you, like to say, hey, we want you to live here and you know, pay us. Well, then they're going to have to provide you a good service for that. And so I think that is maybe one way you can explain it in a way that's not like only libertarians will get into it. Well, I guess one way I might go about it actually is, and I see this a lot, all the time, a lot of, especially I would say the Bitcoiners that first get into Bitcoin kind of turn into this like doomsday cult group of people where all they do is say, oh, I want the big crash because then it'll go to the moon and I'll be rich. And they think they'll be like some kind of Earl Lord of the wasteland with Bitcoin. <laughs> you know, the, the truth is that would be bad for everyone. And that's actually something, what was his name? Tone Vase says a lot. Like, do you, you want that? You want your uncle who works at a factory to lose his job? You want that to happen? Do you really want to be the only rich person in your family? Who do you think is going to go to you for money? Everyone you know. Like, and, and that particularly happens a lot with gold bugs too, where it's like, it's physical, so it can't be deleted. If our electricity goes out, it still exists. So I'm putting all these gold bars in my safe for when the world collapses. And it's kind of like the people 
just, you know, I don't know, throwing life vests on themselves and screaming in people's faces when the Titanic's about to hit an iceberg or something. Whereas mm. I feel like a lot of the time, Bitcoin people are actually just trying to solve a solution that won't just be useful if the world collapses. It can be useful now and it can prevent a collapse. So it's not like I'm rooting for some big collapse. I see, I see that so much that people decide they don't want to talk about Bitcoin because they think the only way Bitcoin can succeed is if everything else fails. That's not what this is about. This is about making it Absolutely. so, like for instance, S&P 500, I own a decent amount of stocks. People know I own stocks in AMD. AMD is doing well right now because they have these revolutionary architectures that are taking Intel to task. But there's a lot of other companies where I'm not sure what they're doing that's new. <laughs> they kind of just still exist, but their price keeps going up because they managed to stay in the S&P 500. If Bitcoin was the standard, there would still be stocks that go up, that go down. You can still do trading, guys. We're not replacing the stock market. We're just saying there wouldn't be this fat that keeps these useless companies running. And the ones that truly were succeeded would be re rewarded even more. Right, yeah. And uh, just to touch on this whole apocalypse point yeah. as well, I absolutely think, at least for me, my listeners, my, my followers, we aren't thinking of this like we want the world to go to hell in a handbasket so that we can pump our Bitcoin bag, right? Mm -hmm. We really are viewing this more like, hey, whether or not Bitcoin exists, this financial market stuff is going to be a problem at some point. We don't know when. It's going to happen. It's already but we don't a problem. Know when. Right, right. It's already a problem regardless of whether Bitcoin exists. But what we're trying to do with Bitcoin is build a parallel so that it's a smoother transition at least. So that people who want to at least start saving some of their wealth outside of this, the system, so mm. to speak, can do so. And people who want to transact outside of the system can do so. And over time, steadily, we see it like, you know, the the Bitcoin economy will just grow over time, right? Right now it's small, right? It's a it's a drop in the mm -hmm. bucket, let's be honest. Bitcoin in the in the global scheme no, of things is nothing. It's tiny. Yeah. It's 150 billion in like a, you know, broad money is like 90 trillion, mm -hmm. right? Global wealth would be something like, I think it's know, like 500 two or 300 trillion, yeah. right? Um it's it's absolutely nothing, right? But over time we see this because it just has better characteristics, right? Bitcoin is it's harder. It can be spent anywhere. It just has these characteristics that we believe will tend towards it becoming more broadly adopted. And it's it's not going to happen overnight, but we can build a parallel system you know, using Bitcoin. And that is what will hopefully, if anything, dampen the the crash that will come kind of thing. And it may not be like a, it may not be a crash, so yeah, to speak. It may just not. be like a steady, yeah, and we don't want that, if anything. We want like a slow, steady kind of, people can transition over to the Bitcoin economy over time. And so this is something where, you know, if you're going to sign up for this, you need to sign up for the long haul, right? This is not something you buy and you get rich in a year, right? It's not get rich <laughs> yeah. quick. It's let's have a free financial, free and open financial system that is better than the one that we're stuck in right now. But yeah, right now, land is very cheap on Mars. So buy it before everyone has <laughs> to buy land. On Mars, I, I think what one uh, one of the biggest misconceptions too with all of this is Bitcoin's killer app is not like the fact that it's anonymous or it's fast. Although to be honest, I never thought it was that slow. Like I was just like, why would I need to buy a cup of coffee with this? Why would I ever use this to buy coffee? <laughs> but um, but what it's really about is unconfiscatable wealth that you can send immutably, which is truly the only thing it really, really, really does that nothing else has done before. You can compensate gold, 
you can confiscate it and someone can steal it back. But once, but, but Bitcoin just cannot be taken from you. Now, look, they can kill you. They can kill you still, but they don't profit once you're dead. There's no incentive to kill you, unlike gold, where if they kill you, they'll just find your safe and take it. And if you send Bitcoin, it's sent. I know it might not be fully anonymous or as anonymous as some people think it is. But once you send it, it's still sent. It's still done. The transaction is over. The person received their money. Again, you might die because they see you see it. You sent a transaction out of Venezuela or into Venezuela to try to feed a family. But it's still a cent. And we'll have to work for 100 years on all these other problems. <laughs> but this is new. And this is a very big deal. It's, it's not about the speed or the anonymity. Although those can be nice. Currently, I am in the process of breaking down my mining rigs. It's just not profitable anymore, and I want to use some of the spare parts, plus a few new ones, to build my first benchmarking station. Now, what most people might not be able to guess is that my mining rigs all used Windows, and ones with legitimate keys. But getting those legitimate keys was a hassle. I was forced to scour eBay and be discerning and making sure that the people selling those $10 Windows keys weren't a scam. And sometimes the keys didn't work and I had to fight for my money back. But you don't have to if you go to CDK Offers. Go to cdkoffers.com and use the promotional code BROKENSILICON to get 25% off an already cheap list price of Windows 10 Professional. Then all you do is click on your email account, go to user center and then my purchase orders to get the code just use this code with a normal download of windows 10 professional from microsoft's website all right links in the description That's right. And I think even those points are being very rapidly improved, right? So for example, mm. there's some really good lightning apps. So um, if you're on an Android phone, you can check out Phoenix, which is an incredibly fast setup. Like if somebody already has lightning, they can fund you with an incoming channel. And then you can basically just buy, do these little day-to-day -day transactions all using lightning network, right? Which is incredibly fast. It's faster than Dash, privacy, by the way. Yeah. I've, I've used it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, there you go. And so... Yeah, so you're right. I think it's it's a long-term project where we're trying to, you know, this is like society's Manhattan project or something like that. Like it's it's like a huge project that people are drawn to because they want to contribute and they want to make the world a better place and that's why basically most of us are here. Yeah, I think a lot of people um look at how old Bitcoin is and they try to use it as an insult, you know, it's been 10 years and what has it really done? But no, that's a compliment. It's been 10 years and no one's been able to stop it. And trust there's been people trying to stop it with very small sums of money to see how, let's say, fragile it is. But none of it's worked. And this curve that we're going to is just going to take time. I mean, I think, how would I put it? Like, I even wrote this down. Like, I think if you really think about it, all these boom and bust cycles in Bitcoin, like in 2012, I think the innovation was it officially existed for a few years and it didn't disappear when everyone thought it would. You know, that was that boom. 
2013, you saw tons of altcoins start appearing. It was about people realizing they can make money off of it. And that certainly was true of the 2017 bust. There was certainly no shortage of shit coins, for, for sure. But there was also the Greek banking crisis before it, and Venezuela even now. And so I think there was this little bit of, oh, it actually does have a use, but then that's what made people make a bunch of altcoins and say, what other uses are there? And I really feel like however long it takes to get there, and Bitcoin's actually arguably starting a bull run now. I think the next thing is just people understanding finally that it's here to stay and that none of these other projects, they started in 2016 and none of these other altcoins have anything to show for it. But yet Bitcoin's only gotten better over five years and or four years, whatever, how much time. And it's actually kept its value. It has. The, 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 and this is something most people don't understand. The minimum price that Bitcoin hits every year has been higher every year to this year. 2019, as scary as it was, 2018, the lowest price it hit was still higher than the lowest price of the previous year. Right, yeah. And I think that's pretty much true for every year. Or there might be one year where it was like about level or whatever. But anyway, the broad point is that it, it over, uh, if you take a long enough t- uh, time frame on this, the price is going up. And what does that mean? It just means more and more people are getting into this. There's a lot more people who are becoming hardened, battle-hardened hodlers. It takes time for that. And it takes time for people to come around to that. The other point I would just make is just to appreciate that the importance of holding, right? So uh, it's not enough to have something that people want to transact through, right? So if you have some altcoin that people just kind of pass through it, but there's no one who actually wants to hold the underlying coin mm-hmm. because they don't believe it's going to be long-term valuable, then the value of that coin will be very, very low. The real demand for Bitcoin comes from when people want to hold it. And that is you know, what we might call reservation demand as well. So that is an important part that many new people to this space don't quite grasp. And it's only once they start to understand that. And then that's the process of becoming a more hardened hodler, so to speak. Well, yeah. And I have a lot of friends ask me, you know, oh, you still have Bitcoin? And then I'll be like, yes. Or they'll say, do you still think it's worth it to own Bitcoin? Or, and I'm like, well, I haven't sold it yet. Oh, but should I buy it? And I'm like, well, don't you get what I just said? If I haven't sold it yet, doesn't that de facto mean I think you should buy it if you don't have any? And this idea that you miss the boat, I guess a point I would want to make about that is it was risky, though. Let's be honest. The people that got in on Bitcoin from 2009 to 2013, it was super risky. Like, where would you even get it? You would have to meet someone in person or there was Mt. Gox, which went to shit. Like the reason these people made such immense sums is because they took some risks. And most people from that era lost some Bitcoin from not the network itself, but just from mistakes they made or the failure of an exchange. You know, there's a reason they've been rewarded so much. It's like, again, like something my viewers would get is like, I hear this all the time, like AMD is worth $51 now. You know, I think I got in at like 13 or something. And then they're like, ah, but I wish I would have just gotten in at $2. And it's like, you understand, AMD was worth $2 at one point because it almost went out of business. (laughs) And uh, anyone who thinks they missed the boat on Amazon at $100, I mean, it's at $1,000 now, guys. It it goes up in price because it also becomes less risky as time goes on. And so you don't need to buy it now if you don't want to, but it's always going to be there. And it inherently is built to gain 
value. And I mean, there really are real world uses there. Yeah, so it just comes down to what you believe the long-term thesis of this thing is. There were many people who got into Bitcoin at whatever, cents on the dollar, yeah. right? And they sold out once they hit a 10x because they didn't have a long-term thesis on what this was. And so there, this is one common point I make to people who say, oh, I wish I bought in 2011, I wish I bought in 2012, but then they probably would have sold at like $20 yeah. right, as well because they didn't have a long-term thesis on this. So that's why sometimes you just got to remember like, were you really ready to hold Bitcoin at that point? Would you have held through a 100x? Mm-hmm. You know, would you would you continue to hold because you have an underlying belief in this long term value of this thing? That's that's really the place where you you have to think about and you have to try to get to if you want to be a long term holder and if you really want to uh, like really move the dial and really really change this thing. So I I think of it like people are trying to take a position in Bitcoin because they have a fundamental long-term belief about it. And that's, even if that's, you size that for your portfolio, right? Like obviously not saying go all in Bitcoin, right? It's just like, okay, I'm putting 1% or okay, I'm putting 5%. And that's, you know, that's what I'm comfortable with or whatever. So uh, there's been some good statistics by Plan B on Twitter as well. You can find him at at 100 trillion USD. And he's run run some numbers showing even if you did 99% cash, 1% Bitcoin and did a yearly rebalance, you got higher return than if you did like the traditional kind of 60-40 stocks and bonds and things like mm-hmm. that. So even if you don't care at all about the ideology aspect of it, people are interested purely from an investment perspective as well. Yeah. And I guess what I would say is I'm really curious about this. So I have, you know, some viewers who wrote in questions and like, I'm curious how you would answer some of these questions. Cause I mean, sure. I certainly can, but Dermige writes in uh, just like any other Patreon supporters can. And he goes, will Bitcoin or other coins ever be at a level of price stability and wallet security <laughs> to compete with or replace traditional fiat currency for day-to-day use, especially as physical currency makes it fewer and fewer transactions. I'm just curious how, I mean, I would say yes, uh, but how would you answer that? Yeah, so the same thing. I think eventually it will. I, do, I can't say when, but mm-hmm. again, that's a function of size. So I think of it like Bitcoin right now is a tiny drop in the bucket. As it gets bigger, then we will start to see it, you know, it level out a little bit more and then people will start to actually do commerce in Bitcoin. But again, it's a this question, it depends on what you view the final kind of market or the total yes. addressable market for Bitcoin is, right? If you think of Bitcoin as, oh, it's just like gold. Well, what do you think it is? For me personally, I think it's, it's on that track to being global money. So mm-hmm. it's going to be like multi-millions probably. I, I think if anything like, Five million or ten million dollars in today's terms yes, per yes. Bitcoin is is understating so, it. I think that's like a conservative. So estimate. to make it make sense to people, you're saying right? Because I think I've always thought of like there are different tiers Bitcoin can hit in terms of success. The first tier would just be, well, I guess the first term tier would just be a novelty that people think has some value for fun. Maybe we would have agreed that it got there when it hit a dollar. And the next thing it would hit, I believe, is useful black market usage, which I believe it hit in, frankly, 2012. This will always be useful for black market dealings. And and then the next tier I saw was basically, well, if it gets to $1,000 to $10,000, this is when it's a good, let's say, backup currency that isn't used by almost anyone. But if your government collapses that day, this works. You can transfer it across the world. No one can stop you. But maybe it stays slow. 
maybe it's hard to trans the off ramps aren't that easy, but the off ramps are there. And I think we've we're long past that one. And we're really right about at the a niche effective backup currency that is pretty easy to work with. It is the de facto currency pretty much in a few third world countries already. It's past being this last resort thing. It's being used. And I think then you get into the addressable market question, right? Like there's people like, I think the next step would be it effectively becomes a gold standard for a lot of worlds where they're like, hey, we're going to put 10% of our currency reserves into Bitcoin. And I guess that market you would say is about 10 trillion. That's what Bitcoin, is. I mean, uh, gold is, right? And above that, then you're saying if it becomes global currency, so I don't remember, I have looked at the charts, right? But isn't it like, I don't know how much, how many total US dollars are there? Isn't it like 2.5 or 5 trillion? I think euro is 2.5. So it depends which uh, metric you're using. So there's M0, M1, M2, M3. I think, um, so you might be referring to M0 or M1 in that case. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of debate around this point, actually. So you can yeah. see uh, the Crypto Voices guys have a lot of stuff. They talk about base money, so they have statistics on this. I think it's kind of comparable to M3, which is broad money, and that's about 90 trillion USD. The global, sure. like all the world's money, is about that. Uh, but I think in reality, it'll be even more than that 90 trillion value because a lot of the value right now has been pushed into real estate and stocks and whatever. I think a lot of that will come sucked back into money. True, yeah. And then on top of that, you've got all these like derivatives and financial uh, foreign exchange markets and all this other crazy stuff on top of that. So I think really, it's just, we don't really have a good comparative. I think that's all we can really say. And I think that's why I think of it more like per Bitcoin, it'll be like multi-million dollars per Bitcoin in terms of purchasing power, right? Yes. By the time we get there, it might be more, right? But I, I think it's just one of those questions that's kind of unanswerable, or at least for now, I think it's kind of unanswerable. I don't really have, I can't tell you, oh, it'll be $5 million worth in today's Exactly, terms, which isn't you know? what I'm trying to do. It's, it just comes down to like, we, it's so hard to pick an exact number when we don't, there's no way to know for sure how much fat is in the system that Bitcoin could end up sucking out. And there would probably be a crash after that where some of the fat goes back in, where it's like, oh no, I do want to speculate on stocks more than we have been. But after that, you know, let's say, yeah, it gets like 90 trillion, 100 trillion. We're also not saying that's happening in five years. And then we're all retiring on beaches in our Bitcoin citadels. That's, that's not what we're saying. <laughs> we're saying this is like a 100-year ramp here of just slowly becoming more and more the standard. Although, frankly, I think, you know, hitting the gold standard probably in the next 10 years. But again, I hate doing that because then it's like, oh, so Tom made a bet. That, that That's not what I'm saying. But it just, it will become more stable as it ramps up. And I guess the other question Dermij asked though about the wallet security, I think this is actually a huge misconception about wallet security that we have secure wallets, right? Like I like to recommend if you have the hard drive space, the bit, just the normal standard Bitcoin wallet that they have on the website that they I've used forever. Maybe it's because I just trust it because it's been there for so long. Just being very careful with how you use it. Um, and But there's plenty of different types of storing Bitcoin that aren't going to be hacked if you just manage it well. And that that's really the real problem, I would say, too, is it's just like, you have to understand that when people get Bitcoin hacked, no one broke a key, right? These cryptographic factors that they're using to secure Bitcoin they're actually old, like 100 years old. They came up with these algorithms and stuff. They've just been implemented in an ingenious way recently. There's no way to hack your Bitcoin wallet unless they get your password, right? 
What would you say about that, like Bitcoin wallet security? Because that's a big misconception too. Yeah, so it's getting improved over time. I think generally speaking, people want to try to start like they might start with a phone wallet and then they might move to having it on a computer wallet and then they might get a hardware wallet, like a cold card, for example. And then after that, they might want to start thinking about multi-signature, right? And that's where there are some of these providers like Unchained Capital. Now, again, disclosure, Unchained Capital are a sponsor of my podcast, right? So I'll just make that clear. And then another good provider is Casa, right? So they're providing a two of three multi-signature solution and they've also got a three of five multi-sig solution. So these multi-signature providers are helping people uh, do it uh, multi-signature. And that means you've got your keys split up. And so you can have one key at home, one key in a safety deposit box, another key with a family member, or you know, just different ways that you can set it up. And that just makes it a lot harder for somebody to uh, steal from you. Again, not impossible, but mm-hmm. it just makes it harder. Um, and so those are some good solutions. Over time, it'll get easier. Right now, it's still a little bit difficult, but I think these providers are definitely uh, making it a lot easier for people to st- at least start with multi-signature, and then they can start looking into other things around defending their own privacy or other aspects of it. Because part of it as well is just if people don't even know you have Bitcoin, because that's part of it, right? Like if people just don't even know you have Bitcoin, well, then that's already a big win, right? Well, let me cut in and say, I'm not a Bitcoin billionaire, guys. I don't have all of this money. It's not on my desktop. You're not going to break into my house and take it. And I'm not going to tell you how I store it because that would defeat the purpose. But I do want to throw that out there that if you tried to rob me, even if you somehow got it from me, you would not be rich. Please, <laughs> please don't try to kill me. And if you do try to kill me, I mean, I was on the rifle team and you're picking the wrong house, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so yeah, so uh, look, ultimately you just have to take steps, right? So don't think of it like, oh, it's so confusing. I don't even know where to start. It's like, take a step, right? Like start with something and then, okay, next step is maybe hardware sure. wallets. And then next step is multi-signature, right? So Take steps and incrementally improve your security and not just that, but also your backups and your recovery. As your investment increases, then you start thinking more about, okay, backups and recovery. If I were to die, how would my family access it or whatever, right? You have to start thinking about those things as well. So yeah, just just take it step by step. That's that's probably well, the and if I may, you the know, advice I would. Suggest. I think people are really just worried that of how daunt that it's going to be daunting and that it's going to be scary. But the truth is, they need to know you have Bitcoin first of all, and if they don't, you have very little to worry about in the first place. No, it's not like you're going to buy Bitcoin and then a bullseye appears on your head. And everyone's trying to hack your computer. It's like, look, you can go to Kraken, or and I know I don't particularly. I have a lot of beefs with Coinbase, but they make the interface easy. You can just go to Coinbase. Maybe you don't care about the three percent BS fee that they charge and all that, but you just buy it. It's pretty safe on there for the most part. But then you can withdraw it, and a lot of this. There's plenty of reputable wallets referenced on the you know Bitcoin.org and all of that. Like you can just go there. And it'll be, for the most part, pretty safe. But if you have a lot, you want to put more effort into it. And one thing I really emphasize with people that I think is overlooked is, and it's hard because it's like famous last words, but it's like, just remember that human error is probably the most likely way you're going to lose your Bitcoin. It's pretty unlikely someone's going to take it from you at gunpoint. It has happened to people. We know. But, you know, you just got to realize the amount of people I've seen on Reddit where they're like, I put a private key on a piece of paper 
And then I put that in the back pocket of my jeans, but I knew which pair of jeans. Oops, I washed them. It's destroyed. But you see that type of stuff or like, I'm only going to put it on one flash drive and I lost the flash drive. You know, just worry about human error first and worry about not telling other people a password. Like it's, it, it is unlikely to be stolen. It's not as scary as they make it out. Yeah, right. Uh, you're right. Uh, I think that's a great caution to give people that many people screw themselves out of their own coins rather than you can become obsessed stolen. with it, right? Right. Yeah. So I would say start with a small amount, right? Like if you're trying to learn how to do your own um, manage the Bitcoin yourself, start with a small amount. Like send five dollars out to your own little uh, wallet and just practice moving that around. And then okay, now a hundred dollars. Now you're comfortable with that. Now a thousand dollars. Okay, and then so on and so forth. And that's how you build that. And just being very wary around backups and you want to test your backup before, you know, you want to make sure you test these things and that you use some of these products, for example, like those steel backup products like Crypto Steel, Bill Fottle, et cetera. So you can back up your 24 word seed or your 12 word seed uh, and, you know, keep that backed up. So that way, you know, if there's a fire or whatever, you, you know, you're, you've, got, you've got some protection against that. So uh, that's how I would answer that. Well, yeah. And the problem is, again, like a lot of people just heard you say a bunch of words they've never heard before. Now, again, I would just say, hey, look, again, you know, uh, I guess I, I, I don't I don't know what I don't want to take the time to pull it up and look at it. But it's like, look, you have a lot of hard drive space. Buy it on Coinbase. It's easy to make an account. Withdraw it to Bitcoin Core. Have a password you remember. You just you're more secure than most people who leave it on an exchange. You can start there. And then you can put put more effort into learning a lot of the words you just said. And that will be secure. 99.9 repeating percent of the time, what I just said. And it was very simple. But you should, if you have a lot of money, <laughs> eventually put in the more effort. But you have the time to do that. You don't need to become obsessed with it uh, right away. You know, it's, it's really not right. that hard. Uh, I guess, so let me also say this. So Dermish also asked this, and I, I do want to ask you this question. I think we're kind of to the last probably 10, 15 minutes here, the podcast. And I think one way, one thing to close out on is, so for the general public like myself, there seems to be a real lack of any real understanding of cryptocurrency still. If you could get one fact across to every person on the planet, just one fact, especially regulators, I guess, what would you choose for that all-important factoid? Is this, is this for a regulator to understand or just the general public to understand? Basically, everyone, for it to be uncommon, accepted knowledge. What's the one fact you just wish everyone knew? That society flourishes best when we actually have sound money chosen by the market and not by the government, right? I think that right now, too many people just assume that, oh, the government is managing it for me and they're going to do a good job. But unfortunately, when you have some centralized party or entity who can print more of it or change the system and make it such that it's easier to print more of it, then that is overall bad for all of us. And I think that's probably the key point that I wish I could get across to most people. Uh, it obviously takes a lot of time to convey that and mm -hmm. understand why, what are the underlying facts and what are the underlying story, of, what's the underlying story of history that's taken us to where we are today. Uh, and I, that's, that's why I view Bitcoin as this asymmetric defensive technology. And even if you're from the point of view of a government or a regulator, if you want your nation to be more productive, I think you've got to also think of it like, hey, having sound money will make 
the nation more productive, even if you were like a you know government type person. Whereas obviously I'm not, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, I think that's the way one way to think of it. Um, yeah, so I would just think of it like you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket with the government and the government money. So keep at least some of your money outside the government, and that's Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard. I would say that's that I would probably agree that if there was one thing that just understanding that could, you know, really, really change. I don't want to say change minds. because Again, I don't want to make it about that. I, I think the way I think of it, too, is it's just like I wish people could get past. And it's not just Bitcoin, let's be honest. Applying a political, shall we say, category to every little thing we do now. And that they could just look at it as the philosophical innovation that Bitcoin truly is. I mean, it's a very simple technology, really. It's really not that hard to explain that you could just look at it with fresh eyes and it's not really about being right or wrong. It's just about this solves very real problems. Now, actually, that that's funny. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but I thought this was hilarious. So I think this was over a year ago by now, but I saw a poll... It was, again, I don't remember the details. It was a pretty reputable poll, though, with like thousands and thousands of people. And the question basically was, um, are you interested in Bitcoin? If yes, why? And if no, why not? And then they broke it down by groups of people, gender, location, country, all of that. One of the statistics that came out of that study that I found, the most frankly funny to me, was when it said, why do you not care about Bitcoin? There were several problems. I mean, there were several answers. And one answer was like, I'm sure it's a scam or like, I'm sure it won't work out. And then there was also the answer that I think if people are being honest, this is what it is for them. Uh, I just haven't done research and I don't really care, (laughs) which is fine. What I thought was hilarious is that if you broke it down by gender, most women who didn't care about Bitcoin said they didn't because they hadn't done the research and don't care. And the guys were overwhelmingly the more aggressive answers of, I'm sure I'm right, basically. <laughs> and I think there's, <laughs> and I'm like, isn't that just such a testosterone thing right there? It's like, not, I miss the boat on Bitcoin, but it's because I'm smarter than everyone else. <laughs> and I just right, thought that was hilarious. Right. And I think if people are being honest, that's what they're doing. They're saying, I missed the boat, even though I don't think you have. And the reason I'm going to continue to ignore Bitcoin is because I'm right. But Bitcoin doesn't really care if you think you're right. It's still there. Yeah, so it comes down to that. And I think uh, it's like that statistic that, you know, I, I don't know the exact number, but basically a high percentage of drivers, male drivers mm. think they're better than the average, right? And it's like, no, mate, you can't all be better than the average, right? Anyway, the point is Bitcoin has survived for 11 years. It has very, very little downtime. Essentially, it has survived. It's continuing to survive. There's a lot of work being done to make it more resilient and can make sure that it continues surviving. It's just a matter of time, in my view, that people will uh, come around to it because it is just a harder money. And so once you appreciate that, then it's a, it's a question of how do I react to that? And generally, that means I want to hold some. So I want to accumulate. And so... That's kind of the typical progression for people. And then they get to the point where they just regularly accumulate Bitcoin stacking sets, as it were. Yeah, you know, I think I may have heard this on your podcast. Someone say, it may have been one of the recent ones where he goes, 
You know, at this point, I, my advice to learn about Bitcoin is to just buy some. And I used to think that was silly, but I think, I think that's kind of where I'm at now is it's like, look, I'm right. It's gone up for 10 years, right? It was made in 2020. It's gone up for over 10 years, guys. It's going up. And in fact, all indications point to another bull run starting fairly soon if it hasn't already. Who knows where it will go to? Maybe not as high as before. Maybe it won't go as exponential as before, but it is still going up. And and in Bitcoin, you know, it, it doesn't really care if you believe in it. But for common sense reasons, you should probably just buy some. And I think that's true. And, and it doesn't need to be a thousand dollars. You don't need to own one Bitcoin. It's you can what is it divided to a hundred million? Uh, hundred million, yeah. Yeah, it, one Bitcoin can be divided a hundred million times before we even talk about Lightning and dividing it via you know sub satoshis. You, you can just buy a hundred. And then hold it. I'll even be nice to you. You can hold it on the exchange for a month before you move it off. And that's probably just where you should start. I think that's kind of where I just tell people now and just try to tell them in a way that's not, you know, hodl gang, buy it now, bro. Just be like, well, I think buy some and then you'll start to understand it is probably the nice way to put it. Right, it's skin in the game, right? Exactly. Sometimes you won't, you won't, because what what was coming back to your point earlier about the survey and not caring? Well, you start to care once you hold some, and then as you start to see it go up, then that's when you people start really start reading more into it. They start listening to the podcasts and so on, and reading the books, uh, and then at that point, then now they've got the incentive, and now they've got the the headspace is in the they're in the right headspace to actually learn and actually go go down the rabbit hole, so to speak. And so for many people, they just never go down that rabbit hole. And for us, it's around how can we best convey that to you that actually this is a valuable thing. And uh, ultimately, I, I don't have to convey it to them. I think yeah. people will just come, right? Like, I think it's kind of like a, it's just- That'll probably be part of the next in. bull run, right? Like, I'll, yeah. maybe I have to be wrong because it's, at, you know, 20,000 again. So I better just shut up and buy some. I think there's going to be a lot of people that do that. I think so. I think people will, um, as the price approaches back to the all-time high, you'll see it on the news again. And then people will be like, what? I thought that thing died in 2017. It's mm-hmm. back. It's still alive. Okay. Now let me pay attention to it again. And as you said, that will be the second or third exposure for most of these people. And so mm-hmm. that is what yeah. will pull a lot more people in, in this coming, what we believe is the coming bull run. You know, my favorite uh, Satoshi quote is, if you don't believe me or don't get it, I don't have time to try to convince you. Sorry. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's where I was at last year. But now I'm just at the point of like, I'm not trying to convince you to get rich. I'm just telling you I still use it because I know it's going to work out. And so far, I'm just continuing to be more right every year. I don't know what, I don't, you know, maybe just try buying some. You might, uh, it might pique your interest. Yeah. Or the other way, like go to a Bitcoin meetup. If you've got a local Bitcoin scene, go to the Bitcoin meetup and just meet some people there and maybe ask, hey, can I just buy $5 or $10 of Bitcoin off you, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can just get set up right then and there. If you've got an Android phone, right? Like get get on Phoenix app or get Samurai wallet. If you're, mm-hmm. if you're on Android as well, that's my favorite for Android Bitcoin wallets. Uh, and just get them to send you like 10 bucks and you pay them $10. And now you've got at least some skin in the game and now you're going to start like learning about it. And, you know, if you're at the meetup, you can talk to the guys and girls there and just figure out a little bit about it and ask your questions there. Uh, or if you're more kind of, you don't really want to go to a meetup, well, then, you know, check out some of the resources, mm. right? Read the Little Bitcoin book. Yeah. Read the Bitcoin Standard. I really recommend that Listen one. to my podcast, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, 
I remember when I first sent a Bitcoin transaction, my hair just stood up because I actually understood what happened. I'm like, wait, oh, there it is in my email, an Amazon credit, uh, an Amazon gift card. Oh, wow. So I just sent money and no one could have stopped it. And like realizing that I was like, dude, this is, and that's what it really comes down to. It's about the immutability. And yeah, I agree, by the way, I think the little Bitcoin book, I read it so that I could recommend it if I wanted to. And it's, it's very simple. It's very, it's very, very uh, simplistic, but on purpose. It's like a hundred, I don't know what it is, like 120, 150 pages. It's yeah, not that long. You can long. read it in like maybe one or two hours. Say. You it's really very can. Quick, easy one. Yeah. It's like and eight I, bucks, I interviewed right? uh, two of the authors. Yeah, it's like, it's really cheap. I actually keep copies of it to give to people. Like, I don't just give it out willy nilly. It's more like if I sense they're interested, then, I, then I'll mm. give them a copy of that book because I think that's one of the best intros. Uh, and so the authors that, of that book were very kind enough to list my podcast as a resource at the end of that book, actually. <laughs> um, and I did an episode with Jimmy Song and Alex Gladstein, episode 102 of my show as well, to talk about the book because I thought it was a really good book and uh, you know people should recommend it for Bitcoin newbies and new, new coiners. Well, I did list you as a recommendation in my first Bitcoin article as well. And I think it's because your podcast is such, I mean, it's well done. What can I say? And you, maybe you don't like every episode if you're technically focused or if you don't know anything about the technical stuff, you don't want to listen to those episodes. But you put out a lot of them. And, and let me ask you, how, how many times do you record podcasts, bro? Because you you really churn them out. Yeah, I normally aim for two per week. Yeah. So that's kind of my current cadence. I try to, yeah, roughly two per week. Although they tend to be one hour or ish one hour. Uh, episode. So there's a lot of research and work that goes into the planning and the, you know, the production of them. And I typically get transcripts done and mm. stuff like that. So yeah, I really try to just make a good, honest, high quality podcast about Bitcoin. And I think that is why I've just, it, it, it has just built up very quickly uh, because it just, I think people were starving for high quality info. And well, that, that's kind of what I'm aiming at. Well, people are always starving for high quality info. And I recommend your podcast because let me put it this way. It respects your time. There's a lot of podcasts that are four hours long each and they just sit there and a lot of times they're just two comedians joking around some, I don't know, like a historical event or something. And sometimes they're good. Sometimes those ones are good. But usually it's just wasting time and you move, it moves quick. You learn quick. And again, if you just want to scroll through the episodes of Stefan Levera, you can just pick Jack Dorsey if you want. You can just pick what was, uh, I'm trying to remember, I think it was Connor. I think it was episode 88. Connor, Connor Brown. Yeah, that's a great one for beginners. Connor Brown. Yeah, well, I, um, I reminisced with his yeah. beginning so much. That's why I liked it. But uh, yeah, so I recommend that highly. And um, I guess I basically just plugged you at the end of this. Let me answer one more reader mail though here. So... Autobahn writes in and he says, how safe are our precious gaming graphics cards these days? Should gamers worry about any potential explosion in demand like that before? And this will lead me to one more question for you. But like, did you see how much the prices on stuff went up in 2018 and ended 2017? Yeah. So my view on that is in terms of Bitcoin, the ship has sailed, right? Yep. So as I'm sure you know, um, but just for your listeners, it went CPUs, GPUs, uh, FPGA, and then a ASICs now. Mm. So for Bitcoin, it's never going back, right? Like it's ASICs all the way. So applications-specific uh, integrated circuit. And so from a Bitcoin mining perspective, 
it's not going to GPU. It's hard like, to even all have that GPU, an ASIC in yeah. your house anymore with how competitive. Yeah, Bitcoin exactly. Is. Like nowadays, it basically needs like multi, like pr- pretty much million dollar or multi million dollar investment to be a profitable Bitcoin miner. Now, in terms of altcoins, yeah, maybe some of them might choose things that can be done profitably on GPUs, and that's what we saw in 2017. Yeah, I mean, you had four hundred dollar graphics cards selling for. 1500. It basically made, there were basically two years where you couldn't build a gaming PC for any reasonable amount of money, even if you bought used cards. And I honestly, my opinion is there's, I think there's always going to be some new coin that booms quickly and uh, creates a little bit of scarcity. But I think the days of the absolute, I mean, the first one was the end of 2013 and 2014, but that one was like six months. It really wasn't that bad either. And they doubled the price. But I don't. I don't ever think we're going to see something like as bad as 2018 again. Personally, I, I. I think. I think that ship sailed kind of too. That altcoins, if you look, they all kind of go up and down together, guys. I know that you have your own project, but it's really just Bitcoin or everything else. And I. I don't know. I really just don't see <laughs> people falling for it that much again. Maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? Uh, I uh, sometimes there's a famous saying. I think it's P.T. Barnum. He said, "There's a sucker born every minute, right?" So, who knows, right? Uh, maybe there will be some crazy. Not that I want it to, but yeah. maybe there will be some crazy run because again, there'll be a whole round of new people coming in, and they will all feel that oh, I missed the boat factor, and then they'll start gambling on altcoins, and then maybe that causes another kind of altcoin run for all we know. Not that I want that to happen. No. I don't hold any altcoins. I never shill them. I'm Bitcoin only, but th- that may come, right? Like, especially once we hit a new Bitcoin all-time high, if we, assuming we do, it may happen. But I, I don't we think don't know, it's going to be this bad in the next one. I think, uh, again, uh, this, I'm not a prophet. I'm saying this is my opinion. But my opinion is that uh, uh, one of the main things that would set off another bull run right now would be people going into Bitcoin because they accept it for its true usefulness, and they reject the projects that gave them nothing. And so at least in this bull run, I don't think it's going to be as bad. Look, prices are going to go up for everything by at least some. So I'm sure something will change in price. But then again, the other thing I would also add to that is uh, a little off topic, but like graphics cards are like really powerful now, guys. <laughs> like they're not just for gaming. I've seen a lot. I saw someone building a bunch of Vega systems together. Uh, it looked like a mining rig, and he said he was using it to render an indie movie cheap. So like you guys got to understand the immense computational power in your graphics card. That's the only thing I would add to that. Mm, yeah, yeah. And look, I mean, you've got to be you got to keep your eyes peeled, right? There's always scammers everywhere and you don't know, they're not they're not necessarily going to scam in the same way that they did 2 or 3 years ago. There might be some new type of scam or some new exactly. scheme, right? So you've just got to you have to just be wary and just be really careful about what you put your money into and what you invest your time into. So that's uh, the only uh suggestion I can make there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I pretty much hit every point. Do you have anything you want to talk about? Any questions you have or anything you want to say before we close up? Uh, look, I would just say, yeah, like we said, um, it's it's a question of, uh, I think, like we say in Bitcoin, the first investment you should make is your education, right? So mm. maybe buy a small amount just to have skin in the game and then spend some time learning, right? We are early. 
right? It's not that you have to buy in now and you know, don't get kind of sucked into any cycles, short-term cycles. Think of this like a long-term cycle. And so, yes, yeah, so some good resources in terms of what I produce. So stefanlevera.com. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is ministryofnodes.com.au. And that is Ministry of Nodes is where we, me and one of my co-founders, a longtime friend of mine and a Bitcoiner as well, we write guides and we write articles and we run webinars for people who are interested about learning, okay, how do I store my keys? How do I run my Bitcoin node? Things like that. Uh, but uh, yeah, definitely check out the podcast. And uh, yeah, thank you for inviting me. Oh yeah, no problem. Thanks for coming on. The following podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website, Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and select technical editing by Carbon Cry. You can find all of our information, including how to get a hold of us, at www.moreslawsdead.com. And if you are a fan and would like to send mail or other hardware, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead, P.O. Box 10468, Peoria, Illinois, 61612. And speaking of fans, without exaggeration, the patrons are solely responsible for the continued distribution of the content you just listened to. And so if you have some extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, the Moore's Law is Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you. I am one of them. The Discord is only at $1, and at higher tiers, you get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the back catalog of Flyover States podcast, thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts and other perks as well. And if you cannot afford to support us, please just share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media and Reddit. And give Broken Silicon and Flyover States a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All of this really does help so much more than I think anyone realizes. If you'd like to advertise on the podcast or a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its fans supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Bootman, Hunter Drake, Dean, Benny Berlin, Justin Yant, Thomas Rupp, I Love You, Lennon Jim, Bollocks, Jordan Betcher, Muhammad Al-Kawari, Carbon Cry, Prime Tech TV, Justin Parrish, Zachary Martin, Terrence Herod, Carl Marco, Phil S., Thyrister, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegar, John Bible, Larry Hoskins II, Night Rogue 77, The Mechanical Philosopher, Lebo Kinkilo, Fatboy Diesel, Derek Evans, Matthew McMullen, Christoph Novak, Neil X01, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Sexy, Scott Show, Frederick Lau, Alexander Delar, Alethros, Telos, Kaiden, Greg D. Wanchik, Jacob Barber, X Sodi, Whiny Care Bear, Matthew Lane, Paul Jones, Jan Rauner, Rubber Ducks, Michael Costa, Allie Robertson, Gordon Lamp, Sadler Sadler, and Chrysantine. And of course, thank you to Zahara for the music.